0: quick disclaimer off the top we were doing an interview episode this time and uh we had some slight audio issues
1: right like right. we only have two mics <laughs> and now suddenly we have three mouths speaking
0: yeah uh, it's not too bad i think uh no, but uh you know bear with us
1: yeah sometimes be, it's fine Everyone. Welcome to Street Sweeper. I am Ricardo. And I'm Will. He is. Uh, <laughs> and uh, welcome to uh, our first different episode uh, where we have a distinguished guest. Uh, <laughs> indeed, we are doing an interview episode. We are branching out. We're, we, we've launched the Patreon and now we're, you're getting your money's worth. Um, <laughs> but I'm not getting paid. <laughs> That's... at uh, the. If you were, then we would not be getting our money's worth. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yes, so um, as we said in the last episode, we, uh, this, 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 in this one, well, in the previous episode, we were uh, talking quite a bit about on the basis of a paper we wrote and then we censored um, about, the um, evolving nature of uh, housing investments, uh, where the money comes from, who is producing housing, where is architectural, where are architectural jobs coming from in relation to the industry, uh, the construction industry, public sector uh, education and public sector housing during the construction of the welfare state, going into a crisis and the neoliberal turn and all of the wacky nonsense that that created in architectural ideologies when you no longer had a secure job in the London uh, council uh, office. Um, so we talked quite a bit about the housing crisis there, uh, the housing, the, the, the crisis of the public sector in the 70s and the crisis that is happening now. Um, today we have our very good friend and comrade, uh, Lorraine Douglas, a veteran, uh, a housing activist and
2: organizer, um, more or less. Well, how how
1: would you categorize yourself?
2: I would say I'm a retired housing professional with an ongoing passion for housing as an issue, uh, and, and, and militancy uh, on it, at least. In the yeah, party. but from from a trade from a trade union background. So in terms of organizing in the workplace, um, you know, and organizing yeah. colleagues in the workplace. So that sort of issue, rather than. Playing a major role. I I am, however, the convener of the Housing Commission for the Communist Party of Britain uh, and uh, have been instrumental in producing the party's housing charter, which was published earlier this year, uh, as well as uh, being involved in producing um, a more detailed, longer pamphlet on uh, housing in England and the history of social housing in England with a range of comrades who are actually involved in housing professionally and also politically. Right, yeah, so as you see, a distinct pedigree and
1: serious knowledge about the the issue. And yeah, we, we want to talk about the housing crisis as it is ongoing, but also have a kind of a, a kind of a take from experience, from direct experience of what, what was the working class experience of the period of welfare state construction and public housing investments, what the radical improvements that were achieved at the time, and uh, what has been the, like, slow but steady process of destroying all of that?
2: Right. Well, I mean, if we go back um, go back to when it all started, really, uh, I, I mean, at the turn of the 20th century, so um, sort of the early 20th century, around about 85% of the population in the UK lived in the private rented sector. The social housing sector, um, such as it was, was almost non-existent. Uh, there was a very small, uh, nascent uh, municipal housing sector starting to develop, uh, and, a, and a small uh, housing association sector largely developed as a result of um, philanthropic uh, exercises, so from people like Octavia Hill, uh, who sort of really started the housing association movement at, towards the tail end of the 19th century. Uh, and this was in response to appalling... Uh, housing conditions that much of the working class were living in, um, you know, just horrendous slums, uh, homes without bathrooms. You know, um, I know bathrooms are relatively new things. Nobody had an indoor toilet, also a relatively new thing, but generally very overcrowded, very squalid, damp, very often, um, you know, several families living in quite small properties and so on. um st- Social housing, if you like, council, municipal housing, really only started to take off um, after the First World War when you had the slogan of homes fit for heroes because you had a whole returning army and they were coming back to squalor. But uh, in advance of that, you also had the development, largely led by women um, in communities, uh, of really, really strong opposition to uh, housing conditions you had rent strikes in response to attempts by private landlords uh raising rents uh, beyond unaffordable levels opposition to evictions neighborhoods turning out and actually preventing people being evicted and so on Um, and i think a growing recognition that uh, something had to change Uh, and so this, the birth really of council housing, I think you you could really trace back to sort of the the end of the um, second decade of the twentieth century, uh, when that started. It was still relatively slow though, but you did have quite a significant amount of development taking place uh, in the interwar years, slum clearances, uh, and so on. You also had the development of Housing Acts. I haven't got all the facts and figures to hand, um, but, you know, so what? But start, people starting to legislate, governments starting to legislate around housing condition uh, and around overcrowding. I think it was the 1936 Housing Act that actually brought in the definition of statutory overcrowding for the first time and outlawed it so that it became a criminal offence for landlords to allow their homes to become statutory overcrowded. Uh, and to let them on a statutory overcrowded basis. And that was a really important um, first piece of legislation. And that came about as, you know, it wasn't largesse that brought that about, it was campaigning and it was people fighting.
0: I think one of the the things that sort of surprised me when I was learning about this history is how much of a business the private rental sector was and how profitable working class slums really were, like in the late 19th century, and how they were expanding and there was really like... It was an investment opportunity that landlords had like a hard time refusing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And um, and we're back there again today. Um, you know, we have seen an almost complete reversal uh, of proportions of people living in council housing and proportions of people living in private rented housing. We are now, um, you know, the majority of people in this country own their own homes, around 60% or so of the population are homeowners um but the proportions are actually starting to reduce uh because the generation coming after me your generation can't afford to buy you're stuck in rented you know generation rent in fact it's generations rent really because you know people really under you're not seeing many people under the age of, sort of their 40s late 30s certainly in london and in in uh, housing hotspots being able to afford to buy homes And this is forcing people into uh, a a growing private rented sector and a private rented sector that is growing with enormous public subsidy. And this is what's really not being understood at the moment. Uh, You know, whether that's public subsidy through housing benefit for um, extortionate rents to public subsidy through the right to buy um, discounts uh, and also public subsidy by not um, charging uh capital gains tax on principal homes, for instance. So when people go to sell their principal home, if they make hundreds of thousands of pounds in profit, as many people do, they don't pay a penny in tax on that. And mm-hmm. that in itself helps to drive house prices, of course, because the release right. of equity is what's actually driving house prices in this country.
1: Yeah, this this is an important point, just like think in general terms, uh, that um, people have a hard time working out at the, at the, at the broader level, not even just housing, uh, is that... Um, the transition to welfare state to a neoliberal model is, is, is not about like stopping pr- public spending. Uh, in fact, very often, uh, when you privatize, the public actually ends up spending more in guarantees of profit for the private sector than when it's, it actually pu- runs the services as public. This is kind of more or less systematic. Uh, I mean, I, I know several recent privatization efforts in Portugal of several public services that actually, in order to privatize, the state essentially sells it for nothing. And on top of that, tells the poor, uh, desperate private company monopoly that is buying the public service that in case they can't make the expected like 9% or 10% profit rate that they want, then the state will cover the difference in this is kind of systematic. Um, and this is true in housing as well, right? As you were saying, the state spends a gigantic amount of money, not doing public housing and letting the private sector do private housing instead by way of indirect, direct, or indirect subsidies.
2: Well, the the, the private sector now has a huge amount of public sector housing at its at its behest about a million homes that were council homes that were sold under the right to buy are now in the hands of buy-to-let landlords and a significant proportion of those are let back to local authorities to accommodate homeless families either as temporary accommodation or or in discharge of homeless duty through a private sector through uh, obtaining a private sector tenancy Uh, And and this is the biggest irony of all. Uh, The government has routinely capped housing benefit payments and justified that on the grounds that council rents are too high. But the council rents that are too high are the ones that are being charged to families in temporary accommodation, which used to be council housing and is now owned by the private sector and charging three times the amount of rent for for what would have been a council housing property. That's why the housing benefit bill is as high as it is because we have lost social housing. I mean, in terms of, you you referred to um, social housing, I think, almost as part of the welfare state. Well, I think it transcended the welfare state. There was the post-war consensus that people had an entitlement to decent housing, that there was a right to decent housing. Uh, And also, there was an enormous job to do. Vast swathes of the east end of London were bombed out. You know, there were bomb sites. Uh, and the only thing to do was to replace the homes that, that had been there, most of which were slums, or a large proportion of which were slums, with new housing. And the only capacity to deliver the amount of housing that was needed could, could be developed by the state and could be done by the state. Every local authority had their own direct labour organisations. Every local authority had their own design and build teams. Uh, local authorities became the vehicle, really, for the development of of, um, skills and knowledge in building and in uh, planning and in, you know, designing areas to live. Uh, And so you had, from 1945 onwards, just a massive programme of of housing delivery. And that continued right the way up until the 1970s. What was interesting is in the years where the most... um, Council homes were delivered were also the years where the most private sector homes were delivered. And the private sector was building at pace and at volume to meet demand uh, because the alternative was that people would move into council housing and therefore mm. there was no profit to be made. The profit margins on, on homes were tiny in comparison to what they are now. My The first home my dad bought, which was, was in 1966, Uh, after moving out of council housing, cost £6,000. And that was a brand new three-bed new-build property uh, in Kent. And lovely home, backing onto strawberry fields and huge garden, (laughs) £6,000. Now, I don't know what £6,000 counts as today in in cash terms, but I'm damn sure it's not a half a million, which is what you would be paying pretty much for the house that uh, he had back then. And then the next at home least, he at bought... At least. At least. The next home, 1969, this was moving back to London, £9,000, another three-bedroom townhouse, very nice, London Borough, Greenwich, super. And then, you know, then the 1920s, detached bungalow around the corner for £19,000 in 1974. Those were the sorts of prices, and the increase in, in house prices was nothing like. You didn't get the exponential increases in house prices. When I... um. Uh, I mean, the first homes that we lived in were were council... Well, the first homes we lived in were actually Guinness buildings when after, after my mum and dad got married and uh, I was born and my brother were born. And we and these properties were unmodernised, tenement blocks in the city, you know, in, in Hoxton, uh, no bathrooms, shared toilet with the flat next door. You used to go at the pub- public baths for a bath. I can remember that. That's in my living memory from the early 1960s. And then we moved into the council flat that was the flat that my my dad grew up in after they moved down from Scotland. My grandmother brought brought the four kids down from Scotland in the um, late 1940s, early 50s and raised the family, Uh, and this was a flat in Hoxton. She went off, we moved in, and, um, and then she came back, we moved out. That's when we moved to Kent. And then my aunt ended up moving into that flat and brought her family up in that flat. And that was a flat that stayed in our family almost from when it was built until until eventually my aunt bought, bought the property under the right to buy for nothing, for next to nothing. I think right. £16,000 she paid for a three-bedroom flat in Hoxton. Right. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, you know, d- sold it a few years later for the best part of a quarter of a million pounds. So it gives you an indication of just how much, and we, we are only talking around 10 years. So from 16,000 pound outlay to around, you know, getting on for 200,000 um, uh, pounds when she actually bought. And then, of course, you then goes on to buy another property somewhere else and all of that money's gone. Well, who's getting that equity? Where? Who is making that money? Where is that equity going? Mm.
0: Do
2: you know, it's... It's not going into people's pockets, or some of it's going into people's pockets, but the majority of it is just going into this self-perpetuating system where housing has become a commodity for making money. Some people make very, do very well out of it. Some individuals do very well out of it. A lot of people are doing very, very badly out of it because they're not able to get a foot on that particular ladder.
1: Yeah, so this is a point we try to actually emphasise all the time, is that even under the limited conditions of the welfare state, Uh, The public housing sector uh, in Britain, uh, Britain's a very good example of that, but other Western European countries will will share a similar story. Um, It really represented a kind of immensely uh, influential decommoditization of housing. Uh, Like we're talking about like half of the housing stock in a country not being in the market. And even if the other half is existing market conditions, that, that non-commoditized half if effectively functions, even passively, as a kind of incredibly powerful regulatory mechanism that keeps that market under control, because it has to compete with very cheap, very high quality housing. Um, and, and we associate this uh, for uh, architects who have been Mostly educated with this kind of uh, panic of public housing, uh, of like the modernist monstrosities of scale and stuff, that's kind of the postmodern ideology that is embedded in architectural education and history telling uh, since like the 1980s. it's also a, a, a it, it directly maps onto, and this is something we were talking about in the previous episode, that a decommoditization of architectural labor as well. Like architects were working in public offices, they had public jobs. Um, they weren't they weren't desperately finding in a private market where they were their their next job was going to come from. They had stable careers in the public sector, so the two things were associated, um, and that kind of the the, the relationship between labor security which we are only talking about in the context of architects who are building the public housing but the the relationship between labor secu- security uh, an, an objective material uh an objective improvement and substantial improvement of the material living conditions of the majority of the population the situation where you get to r- relatively close to zero unemployment um all of this is the context within which this decommoditization of housing is is possible, but also is a structural part of being able to achieve these vaster social uh, goals. Um, today, we have a kind of a tendency to perceive, at least in our profession, certainly, this notion of the state giving you housing being a form of control and limiting your freedom. Right? A, and this appears from a kind of a liberal and even like Self-perceived oh, leftist radical position,
2: but that's one of the ideological myths around uh, what's wrong with with council housing is that oh you can't move, you can't, be, you know, you can't get a transfer, you you're stuck where you are. Well, yeah, and but, your story
1: is really interesting because you're talking about the, a specific flat, which was public housing and council which, housing which and we the old...
2: valued as our family home, and it was. Our family, and it was the whole family's home. You know, my dad, his two brothers, and his sister were brought up in that home. My dad brought us up for a couple of years. My aunt brought her her family up in that home. You know, from from when my grandmother moved out and and you know moved moved to accommodation that was more suitable for for a single person. So um, there is this myth that. It is the ambition of the majority of the population to be mobile, to be able to move wherever they want to. The reality is, is that people don't move a lot. You know, it is extremely unusual for people once they are in settled accommodation to every couple of years or every few years want to be moving or want to be moving for work. And this is also connected to the stability of the jobs. Sure. Well, it's... People want to move more because their jobs are shit. Uh, Well, they don't want to move necessarily. They have to move because there isn't employment available to them. But not only were jobs more secure back in those days, but also people had a strong sense of place, a strong sense of community. They knew their neighbours. I mean, one of the things that um, I can well recall uh, in, in housing was when... They were sort of decanting people for to redevelop or do major works to accommodation. And the difficulties in particular of getting older people to move out of homes that they'd been living in and brought their families up in, many of them actually under-occupying. Uh, and not always actually for redevelopment, just because they wanted to make... They wanted to free that property up for um, uh, a family. You know, you might have a, a, an elderly woman, widowed woman family moved on, occupying a three or four bedroom house uh, and you know one of the things you had to do as a housing officer was to try and persuade them to sign up for sheltered housing or to put in for a transfer and move to smaller accommodation and in every case the response was but my neighbours this is where this is what I know everybody around here why would I want to move half a mile up the road and that's the other thing is you know it is I think human nature to actually be quite parochial it is not human nature <laughs> to want to wander all over
1: the world yeah, and just have wander this loves. is this is uh, the uh, healthy conservatism of proper revolutionaries <laughs> That's <laughs> <way>. <laughs> people, people, what. Know. What do you think communities are? There is there is, there is a, a, a degree of healthy conservatism that we should accept and embrace. That's working I, class communities. I don't even
2: are. I don't even see it as. I mean I know conservatism with a small C, as in yeah. not wanting to see lots of change. I don't think there's a problem with change. It's about when change is done to people rather than with them. And I right. and I can remember I was responsible um, in another job for. Uh, developing a strategy for older people's housing. And there were two key things, one that that was stopping people applying to move into sheltered accommodation, of which there was and is a surfeit in this country because there was huge amounts of sheltered accommodation built in the 60s and in the 70s, social housing, and it's actually really easy to get into, even if you're a homeowner and you, you meet the age requirement because there are always voids. The trouble is there are always voids in properties that are basically bedsits, or where there were shared bathrooms you didn 't have your own bath you 'd have your own toilet in your flat, but you were expected to share a bathroom with another half a dozen people down the corridor, uh, or if you were lucky, you got a one bedroom flat with your own bathroom self contained and what we were being told very clearly was, well, I live in a three bedroom house. what am I supposed to do with my stuff? Of course i 'm not going to move into a bed set. You know, so it's like, well, and also they want the family to come and visit. They want the grandkids to be able to stay over. They want mates to be able to stay out Because, you know, we do have social lives when you get past 60. It's surprising people don't realise that. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, don't build a one-bedroom flat. Build a flat with three rooms in it. The second room can be a dining room or it could be a bedroom. You can use it how you like. But to accept It's that so people- conservative
1: to have more, like... Separate
2: rooms. Well, uh, d- d- no, no, no. <laughs> Working class people don't cook in their kitchens, right? don't, don't cook in their living rooms. This notion of the open plan kitchen, sorry, don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember when I went for my interview at Tower Hamlets and they were really trying to draw this out of me, what, what sort of issues around, you know, open plan cooking and all the rest. And I, I could not, around the modern design, and of course I was applying for a job, Uh, from way up north, so I wasn't even thinking about what, what flats were looking like these days in terms of the open plan kitchen, living room, diner thing. And, uh, and then they were basically saying, you know, that for Muslim people, they, they want a separation of the cooking space from uh, the living room place. And I said, well, to be honest, I said that affects working class people generally, doesn't it? I don't know any working class woman that likes to cook in her living room and would choose to do so. You know, one of the reasons being that you need to be able to shut the kids out when you're doing the, when you're doing the cooking. Uh, and another being that, you know, <laughs> you, you want to be able to get on with it without constantly having people... How conservative having you. kids... How
1: Who conservative having kids? <laughs> <laughs> Who starts a family? It's <laughs> kind of backwards social organization.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably with you on that one, but anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> We're
1: think, making fun of our rag middle class friends.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, I think obviously part of the context of of wanting to have uh, have Lorraine on is that we spend so much of our time on the podcast critiquing, basically, architecture discourse around a lot of these issues and how these problems are interpreted and the kinds of solutions that architectural academia comes up with. And we wanted a, basically just a reality check to how these problems are actually experienced.
2: Well, I'll give you a for instance, you know, and it's actually happened uh, when we, I can remember one time when we were cooking in, in or my mum was cooking dinner uh, in the flat in Hoxton and the chip pan caught fire. Now, she was able to deal with that with a cold tea towel, wet tea towel, all of that, kitchen door shut, problem solved. If, however... That was an open plan kitchen diner and the, the two kids and friends are all sitting there playing in front of this bloody fire going off. The first thing she's going to do is hoik all of us out of the house or out of the flat before she even deals with the question of the fire, by which time the flat's in flames. So there's a very good reason for separating off your cooking facility from anything else, which is a bloody good fire door on the kitchen and knowing that if there if a fire does start, the most likely place for a fire to start in a ki- is going to be in a kitchen unless you're sitting there smoking with with um, about 15 vats of wine under you then you know it's it's kind of you know it should be obvious it should be blindingly obvious and I know I've got friends who enjoy having the kitchen but that's because you know they actually just prefer not to cook
0: that's what I was going to (laughs) say I think the assumption here is that you're actually using the kitchen to cook rather than just to like disassemble your your delivery uh,
2: well quite and that's the difference I guess between People who've got money and people who struggle with money. It's yeah. people who struggle with money have to cook, you know. Yeah,
0: and cook cook large meals with leftovers and my, for families. And
2: my, I mean, my best friend, seven kids, and they, they were in what what in Greenwich they called a miscellaneous acquired property. These were street properties, um, and this was something actually that local authorities did increasingly in the sixties and seventies. Were would they would actually particularly again for older people who might want to move out of their big homes. Built properties specifically for over 50s, not sheltered housing, but designed specifically for people who are over 50, wanted to downsize, wanted to move into cheap social housing, not have to worry about the upkeep, because in most cases you were talking about people who were struggling to maintain the homes that they owned. And then buying these homes, miscellaneous uh, acquired properties, Uh, my mate, she lived in um, one of the old Corbett houses, which you you see all over um, south-east London. Uh, or indeed, south, south it, the south of England, uh, where she and her seven brothers and sisters were brought up. Three bedroom parlour house. A part, that's a three bedroom house with two living rooms, um, and uh, you know, mother used to their mum <laughs> used to basically bring home the big pans from the school kitchens, and it would be huge. Pans full of mashed potatoes and cabbage and mince, help yourselves. But it was all done in the kitchen without being disturbed by any one of the seven kids or the three dogs or the cat because she could shut the door and get on with it or the husband. And then she could just get on with it, do it, and then leave it there and the kids would go and help themselves to the food, but but if that was in the living room, she'd never have got that food done because she'd have been constantly bombarded by one or other of the kids wanting one thing or the other. So, you know, you, when you're designing accommodation, it's like designing kitchens. You need women to design kitchens. Never let a man design a kitchen, never. And I'll tell you for why, because men don't understand about preparation space and workspace, you know, how much room you actually need to cut vegetables and to prepare your meat and to do, you know, whatever you're doing, your, your, your various uh, bits of stuff. Every kitchen that I've ever been in, I know has been designed by a man that I've ever, in every home that I've lived in, because you've, you're you left with probably half a metre of any kind of workspace then broken up with a sink and then with the cooker and the whatever and just no room actually to do the work. Because it, no it probably has, just, just statistically, because like 98% of architects historically have been men. Well, exactly. <laughs> and those architects but, who are women. But like, like, women uh,
1: architects were crucial in, uh, as, as militant campaigners for uh, social housing production.
2: For sure. It was a woman who designed Robin Hood Gardens, I think, uh, yeah. in Tower Hamlet's Brutalist. and Alison Smithson? Yeah. And, and, and Peter as well. Yeah. To, to,
0: to the, the junior uh, partner. The junior yeah.
2: partner. So, and which is now, of course, being knocked down in favour of more steel and glass going up at height on those sites, as if, like, it's ecologically friendly to be knocking down a concrete estate and then putting up more concrete blocks of flats, you know, at a time of climate change. You'd be thinking you'd be a little bit more strategic, actually, about whether you retrofit and, and you know, fix rather than um, knock down and rebuild and put, put up, you know, more properties that are going to have problems, you know, going to have structural problems. I mean, most of the issues on the brutalist estates were not about... uh, them being unpleasant places to live. In a lot of cases it was about the amount of amenity that was put on there, the level of maintenance, the quality of the landscaping and stuff like that, the quality of the um, uh, play areas and the amenity facilities that they that they would have on them. And those were matters of public policy, those were matters of money and about decisions right. being taken, about how much money you would put into that. If you compare for instance the brutalist estates that you see in places like Vienna and most Most of Europe, in fact, completely different arrangements completely different situations. When the ferrier went up, you didn't have, you know, we we were moving towards over 40% of the population being in council housing. Uh, And when that's the ferrier estate in in Kibbrook, and when people moved on to council estates, you had your inbuilt mixed sustainable communities, which Hills was speaking about in the noughties uh, under. Blair, but where mixed and sustainable was not a matter of tenure, it was a matter of demography and a matter of occupation. Right, right. And the majority of people, the vast majority of people who lived on council estates worked, most of them had decent incomes. You had people for professional, you know, in professional jobs, right the way down to, to to manual working. But the rents were affordable. People were not reliant upon housing benefit in order to pay it, and they were not sink estates. They were not the the accommodation of last resort. When Thatcher was elected, she turned council housing into the accommodation of last resort. Firstly, by ensuring that all of the cottage estates were sold off on mass through the right to buy, and then seeing to it encourage. These are
0: these are the lower density, lower density so long, houses.
2: So you know, so semi-detached, terraced houses, basically, or um, suburban. You, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you'll see it in in Greenwich, for instance, on Middle Park Avenue, Cold Harbour Estate, those sorts of estates, where it's houses or you know, um, one up, one flat up, one flat down, masonettes. So you know, right. So a completely different um, sort of environment, but those properties went like that. As soon as the right to buy came in, that's where people first bought. Gradually, um, over the next ten to twenty years, the leasehold properties started to go. Initially, leasehold properties weren't that popular. One because they were that you were paying service charges on top. Um, but two, there was a perception that they were going to be more difficult to sell. Of course, these days there is no such thing as a difficult to sell property. Any property you can, you know, you can. Used to be called hard to let. Once upon a time, and um, <laughs> there is no such thing as hard to let now. But what you've had is a complete change of the demography in council housing now. So the vast majority of people who are getting into council housing now are people who have come via the homelessness route. Uh, many of them are poor, many of them not working because they can't afford a private sector solution to their housing problem. And so you've completely changed the, the social nature of council housing. And now you will see, in the main, when you go onto an estate, you will see very large numbers of quite young families, but very often very poor, poor young families, either not working or on low income jobs. And then you will see older people who've been there since the estate was built and have, have seen the whole thing grow up and move on. What you haven't got is that kind of uh, middle ground of working people, people who are self-contained, self-reliant, uh, and able to actually bring something to a community, you know, something that you need to a community, which is actually sort of that that's kind of sense of being well-off and well-being, really, that you get when people are actually yeah, able you, you to work.
1: You, 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 just, you don't have the foundations of economic stability no. that... that provide the stability of the community
2: no and we're seeing as well that local authorities and indeed housing associations seem to be investing less and less in maintenance at the moment uh, management and maintenance and you know and landscaping and so you're seeing those estates starting to look run down starting to look seedy Uh, if people don't have pride in the area where they're living they don't take care of it and people are pleased to live where they are when the place is well maintained when it looks nice when it feels nice when people feel safe Walking about, they take care of their homes and they take care of their neighbors and they and they take care of their communities.
0: I want to come back to this uh, decline in in estates um, and some of the reasons why that might be happening. But before that, I just wanted to ask something more about this demography, because from what I understand, there were still like I don't know if millions is an exaggeration, but there was still a huge population of working class. Uh, people living in slums up into the 60s, like 19th century. Oh, beyond. Like like back-to-backs and... and, Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. beyond. I mean, a a good friend of mine um, lived down um, in New Cross, Clifton Rise, uh, and it was a slum and it was cleared and they put tower blocks down there instead. Willowbrook House, I think, was one of them. Um, But that was 1974 and um the place was black with with mold running alive with damp uh, horrendous you know and it was i think a two bed two bedroom ground floor property possibly a conversion if i remember rightly and um he had to share a room with his sister this he would have been 14 sister was about 9 and so again you know illegal now. <laughs> right under sat so, so part of part of
0: the Quality of life in council housing was just in general that working people were better off then with with better benefits, better maintenance, better access to council housing. Economic stability, good salaries, good salaries and steady employment. All these things. Part of it is that there was still some residual slums beneath council housing where uh, where less well off. Uh, working class people still were living as council, house was, council housing was still being built and slums were still being cleared. And then, so you get a decline, uh, you get, from what I understand, you get a switch to basically no longer building council housing for general use, but focusing only on slum clearance and replacement in the, in the late 60s.
2: I don't think that that right? it, no. I don't think it was only focusing on slum clearance and replacement. I mean, you also had um, wherever there was land available. I mean, some of it was slum clearance, some of it was bomb site clearance, and I mean, it was a massive job. We still had bomb sites in central London right into the 80s. Wow. You know, Co- Coin Street and around there, as far as I recall, um, was still, you know, was basically bombed out. So, part of it was about um the value of developing if it was public sector land actually getting on and developing it out but that was the difference before thatcher was elected most public sector land was developed out if it was designated housing land it was it was developed out as social housing now socially owned land that is designated for housing is being sold to the to, to private developers that's 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 the switch. That's the big difference. And it's accelerating.
1: And it, it's reached levels of, like, com- in, insanity. Uh, is the thing I keep harping on all the fucking time is how you are now, you have over the, basically since 2008, and the kind of total desperation of the real estate sector, you started having, you started selling off strips of uh, land along the railways that were designated since the Victorian era, by Victorian engineers and planners, as non, uh, non-building areas to, as an acoustic, visual barrier to protect the housing in the area with trees, and now you're just building the more expensive flats, uh, more upscale flats in in, in a neighbourhood, new, newly built, in the worst location in,
2: you can possibly imagine. Well, they're being debt call, calling them luxury flats. In my mind, is just taking the piss. You know, it's if you're overhanging, you, you know, unless you've got quadruple glazing and ne- never open your window, so you've got a complete passive house. And who wants to live in one of those? Um, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like you can't open a window and actually enjoy, you know,
0: the birdsong, the weather, the birdsong. Well, <laughs> well, you can't
2: hear the bloody birdsong if you've got, you know, yeah. the railway It remi- always reminds me of that scene in The Blues Brothers. You know when yeah, Jake, yeah, yeah. Jake takes Elwood uh, takes Jake back to his uh, his room, and you've just got the constant clatter of like the L running past it. You know, and that's what it reminds me of. I hey, don't know how people can. That's stand my it. bed,
0: you sleaze. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh shucks. <laughs> But I, sh- you know, and I've seen it so many times, and very much with the permitted developments, you know, which we were talking about earlier before we started this, is just, you know, office blocks overlooking railways, now empty, being converted, no planning permission required, windows only ever on one side of the flat, you know, you don't get you don't get any throughput if you, and you've got serious problems with thermal comfort, too too hot, unbearably hot in the winter. Uh, very often, unbearably cold in the summer, uh, it, 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 unbearably hot in the summer, and very often unbearably cold in the winter, because of the way that they're just the way they're set up. They're just not set up for human living, as it were.
0: Yeah, you're describing the flat we're in right now. Yeah, I indeed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't like to say, but you know. <laughs>
0: so I was reading uh, Neil Smith, who's a, who's a uh, sort of, or was a gentrification sort of theorist. Um, sociologist or geographer. And one of the things he talks about is how, uh, and he's writing from an American perspective, but how the decline in American project housing was largely an intentional act by uh, the private development sector in order to prepare uh, the land for revalorization through redevelopment. So it's important to actually basically intentionally run down let's say council housing in order to be able to justify produce a big rent gap and then justify redevelopment
2: i think that was um whether justifying redevelopment was the plan whether delivering a million council homes to the private rented sector was thatcher's plan whether she had that much foresight uh i don't know i mean it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me because you know she knew what she was doing Um, And of course, it has been the biggest privatisation probably of any of the assets that the state owned. Um, You know, we were all focused on British gas and whatever. We opposed the right to buy. We had an idea. But I don't think any of us, I certainly didn't foresee what was happening. But then again, in 1980, you know, when that legislation came in, I was paying eight pounds a week for a two bedroom flat overlooking Greenwich Park as a private tenant with the the Rent Act, Protected Rent Act. What she actually did and what generated the um, growth of the private rented sector was to abolish rent controls, to abolish almost all of the controls that had actually been brought in for the private rented sector, which in 1979 represented around 6%. So having right. gone from 85% in 1900 to 6% of, of housing in 1979, it's now the second largest tenure in this country after home ownership. And it's larger than council housing and um, housing association properties combined. So she's completely she completely switched that with her policy decisions that took place. Nobody in 1980, I think, could have foreseen what would happen in the housing sector, you couldn't see, you know, if you did, if people did, then there would be an awful lot of people who would be really, really rich now, you know, who would have gone out <laughs> and bought up all There's, of those... There are those people. There, there are. There are some of those people, but there would have been a lot more. You know, I'm thinking, I mean, my own parents had the resources, working-class people, but had the savings, had the resources to go out and pay cash for some of the um, big properties that were going for a, you know, a few grand, uh, a lot of them relatively derelict, not in particularly good nick, almost all of which have now been bought up by developers and now converted from large family homes into three or four or five or six studio flats, uh, as you know, Rick, in, in, in terms of your... That that property would have cost probably £15,000, £20,000 in 1980 to purchase. And now, you know, you're looking at getting on for a million quid. And they're, 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 there is nobody no, – wages have not increased to such a degree that people can get a mortgage for something approaching a million pounds. To get a mortgage for £20,000 when um, you had to have two and a half – you know, a mortgage had to be two and a half times maximum your income was actually relatively straightforward and affordable for almost anybody in 1980. Right. Yeah. I,
0: was, I was looking at figures for the UK-wide that housing prices adjusted for inflation – Uh, basically a little bit more than doubled since 85, and wages are more or less flat over that same period.
2: Yeah. Which means that the cost of living... Which means that they're declining relative to... The
1: real wage halved, at least in relation to rent. Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and now effectively like my my personal experience, of that rent is seventy percent of my expenses. Yeah, seventy like percent of my salary, which I don't have anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is to
2: pay the rent. But you know, it's generally acknowledged that your rent, if your rent's costing more than twenty-five to thirty percent of your income, then you're, you know, you are in in poverty land, unless you're earning an absolute bloody fortune and you're living in one of those. Massive loss, <laughs> and you're still left with a grand a week or whatever in your pocket. I'm sure there are a few people like that out there, but in the vast majority of cases, you know, anything more than 25% or 30% of your disposable income on rent, and you're in serious trouble. Yeah, you can't heat or you can't eat, and in most cases, you can't actually afford to do either properly.
1: And that's me. <laughs> we we ration in my in my like it, it's a, as you, as you know it's a Victorian house mm. converted into five little studio flats. Mm uh if you can call them that and uh, uh the f- we the, the five of us we function as a like a tiny little community mm-hmm. and we plan out heating like at which time are we going to turn on central heating that mm. well, because we want to uh, not spend too much money so during the winter we are rationing heating there was a year in which you rationed hot water yeah uh where you can only have a shower in certain times of the day and yeah. that's that's the, those are the conditions under which people live, and they're like, up to and including uh, highly qualified uh, teachers in extremely prestigious international architecture schools. Yeah, yeah. That's the reality.
2: Yeah. No, it's uh, unconscionable and completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary. I mean, we we have a housing market that has been destroyed uh, and that operates entirely in the interests of, of private developers, And that's because the amount of social housing being developed is negligible and where it is being developed, it is being developed almost entirely as part of Section 106 um, uh, obligations under planning for delivery of so-called affordable housing. Where you've got just council developments, they're still having to bring in private developers to do the building because you no longer have the in-house skills. They've all gone. You know I don't yeah. think there is a single architect well I don't know when there's a single architect, but very few local authorities now are employing design and build teams, and very few local authorities now have DLOs that are actually capable of running a significant building project where you've still got a DLO, they're doing responsive repairs only, they're not doing building, they're not you know starting stuff from scratch. It's a big thing for for students
1: listening public sector employment is what you need to be fighting for. Well,
2: if you want public sector employment in 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 this field, you've got to go to different countries. There are other countries, I'm sure, that have got it. I'm sure in the Netherlands, they've probably um, got, you know, uh, I mean, there is a, a significant social housing development sector in, in the Netherlands. And I think probably throughout large parts of Europe, you've no. got that. No? Nowhere? No, the, no, no.
1: All, all over Europe. I mean, I don't know specifically about the Netherlands, but Certainly, nothing—not like France, not Spain, not Portugal—nothing not, in the Mediterranean. Like the no. idea that you have, uh, you still have. I mean, it might have changed. I'm going public, back. Public, public sector, uh, public sector employment, uh, public sector design offices. Like, I mean, you have some ar- architects working for municipal offices, obviously, but not as designers, but as like uh, rubber stamp, like approval sure, reject sure. private. Yeah. Uh, uh, as kind of regulation enforcers. Yeah. Uh, normally physicals. attached
2: attached physicals. to planning teams and yeah, stuff exactly. like that.
1: Yeah, you don't have design uh, architectural design teams. You don't have construction. Uh, no. uh, uh, much less construction. Obviously, no. no. That that has disappeared all over the collective West in general terms. Mm. It's not acceptable to have public uh, production.
0: But this is, this is a point that we really emphasize constantly. Uh, that it's not. I don't know how much we have. Anyway, it's a point we make, especially in our writing, that it's not, I mean, architects can't fight for this uh, when they're applying for jobs because those employers don't exist, as Mm -hmm. you said. They can't fight for it through their school projects by just drawing council housing. Like drawn council housing is no more council housing It's no more public than it is private. They have to fight for it politically in society in part of a larger movement. Like, this is a political society-wide problem with overcoming the state of capitalist economy, right?
2: Sure. And and the thing to bear in mind is 1945, this country financially was on its knees and, all right, you had the New Deal and all the rest of it. But the reality is that it was house-building that actually led to the growth of the economy in this and it, and it always will do what you've got at the moment with the private sector having a complete stranglehold over supply is that they are generating demand in order to generate profit and they are controlling supply and they are making sure that supply is insufficient to meet need That's what's going on. It is the role of the state to ensure that need is met. And what we have seen over the last 40 years is that the private sector cannot and will not meet need, is not interested in addressing need because there ain't the money in it. When you've got need being addressed, the private sector builds because then suddenly, you know, it's, it's either, well, if we don't build this, then people will just go into social housing and pay their £100 a week rent, as is now, um, rather than actually going out and getting getting huge mortgages and stuff. Why would you? Why, why would you, especially if you're living in a flat, choose to buy rather than rent if you're paying the same amount in service charges as you are in rent, as you would be in rent as a tenant? And... You then, you're then responsible for, for the maintenance, at least the internal maintenance of your flat. I mean, I'll give a, for instance, of, of the insanity of this. Um, when we were looking to actually buy a, a, a place in a flat in London, when I, I came back down to London to work, and uh, I looked at a flat really cheap. I mean, it was about 65K, all right, this is 2010, um, on about, I think, the 12th floor of a tower block in Plumstead. And... Um, I I mean, it was gorgeous, really fantastic flat, brilliant views and huge. And then we got the service charging. And, of course, because it's a tower block, it's um, got a lift in it and it had a concierge. £5,500 a a year service charge, which is more than was being charged to the tenants of the council who were still paying rent. So the leasehold service charge was higher than the rent. (laughs) And then on top of that, you're still paying to actually buy the lease. So it was like, well, no, madness. You know, you can't, you can't possibly do that. And that's like where the insanity of the economics of home ownership and also the economics of, you know, the right to buy, uh, really, you know, look ridiculous. And that's why there are so f- relatively few count um, tower block flats that have actually been sold. The majority of tower blocks right. haven't haven't been sold for that reason because the charges are so high. Uh, And that's why you're also starting to see things like tower blocks then being outsourced either to tenant management organisations as they are on on my estate or, uh, you know, being sold off to um, alm's length management organisations or indeed just transferred to some housing association. Or they're just straight demolished. Or they're straight demolished. And a huge number are being demolished. Yeah. there's one. There's one tower block right
0: across the train tracks from where I live and I just realized, just learned recently that there used to be, I think, four of them yeah, and they even, there were four-story maisonettes that they even carved in half and just turned into like two-story maisonettes, yeah. I didn't, which doesn't even seem structurally it's so possible. Weird, yeah, I, I don't <laughs> even know
1: how that works.
0: So we wanted to ask you about your experience working in the housing sector um, and maybe the relationship between like what kinds of things you can do through a job that it has its own limitations, and how you find ways to address the problems you see through that job and see through your life. Um, we think there might be some parallel between uh, your experiences and the way architects experience maybe a feeling of powerless or a feeling of being compromised by working in a system that they don't necessarily agree with or that they have difficulty changing. Um, and maybe, if, maybe there's something to learn from your experiences there.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's the case for anybody working in any profession. And I know there is always some debate, is housing a profession? But since the definition of profession is normally self-definition by the people working in it, I think uh, I'm allowed to call myself a housing professional by trade. Um, I mean, I fell into it. You know, I left, uh, I, I went to university in 1979. I did the ubiquitous year on the student union, left in 1983, when I went in, graduate unemployment was, had never been heard of. When I left, there were a million unemployed graduates. So the first job that I had was for the London Borough of Southwark, and I was sitting around a table with about half a dozen other graduates stuffing envelopes, which were week 34 housing benefit uh, uh, letters that uh, went out. Housing benefit people will know what I'm talking about. Um, and then from there, uh, I got, um, after work, got into housing benefit temporary contract, then got a permanent job working uh, as what they called a, a housing interviewer visitor, which was basically receptionist in the housing office. And I was working in the Wendover on the Aylesbury estate. Uh, some people will know about that. Uh, and um, also doing homelessness assessments. So it was very much a hybrid job. Uh and at that time, I started to get very involved in my trade union, which in those days was Nalgo, subsequently merged with New P and Cozy to form uh, Unison. And it was principally through the trade union that you can uh, start to get organised. Now, most of the, the work that you're doing as, as a trade union is you're organising to represent your members, to support your members. But there were some very specific things that I can recall Uh, happening where um, the employer, the local authority, was making policy decisions, which we disagreed with as professionals. So, for instance, um, in Greenwich, uh, a decision was taken to double the rent for sheltered housing tenants And so we took a decision. Uh, We weren't going to deliver the letters, and we weren't going to talk to the tenants about it. If the managers wanted to do that, then they needed to go out and actually confront the tenants themselves, rather than put housing officers in the position of delivering this news. And you could do this without getting fired? Well, uh, we took a trade union position, so it was industrial action. We we, we boycotted it. Um, I mean, eventually it went through anyway. You know, and the sky didn't fall in, and of course, the majority of of people who couldn't afford it were getting housing benefit anyway. So it was just a way of increasing uh, subsidy to private Subsidy. Landlords. Well, no, this this was to local authority tenants. They oh, okay. they were sheltered housing, local authority tenants. But there are those uh, sorts of scenarios um, uh, when I, <laughs> when I was working in Southwark. Uh, I mean, uh, there were some really weird things happened. There was um, uh, a tenement block called the Pullens Buildings in Woolworth and uh, you had the Squatters Network of Woolworth, which was quite well known at the time, that was based in these buildings that were called the Pullens Buildings um, and uh, I think they would originally have been put up by Peabody but they'd been taken on by the local authority every flat was squatted because they've been designated for demolition long term designated so they've been squatted for 15 20 years these flats and all of the people who were squatting had put in kitchens put in bathrooms and were fighting to keep the blocks um so, Southwark Council, eventually, it was a massive campaign, and it was supported by the trade union as well. We, you know, we were in favour, supporting the squatters, and, so, and you could do that through your trade union. You could, you could do support, you'd turn up to demonstrations and things, you'd take the branch banner and stuff like that. Um, and then the council took a decision to um, grant all squatters tenancies and agreed not to demolish the Pullen's. So they went from 150 squats in 12 months to 1,500 squats and a business built up of illegal key selling involving, in some cases, staff members. Uh, At the same time, the council, through probably um, noble uh, objectives, decided not to um, do rent arrears monitoring or to pursue people for rent arrears. And this position was held for about 18 months. Uh, It was a manual system of rent collection, Uh, and people would have the rent they paid written into the rent card and then um, a couple of criminals were pocketing the rent as it was being paid. This only got discovered when the council rescinded its position after rent arrears went through the roof, people stopped paying and then the rent arrears letters went out and people were coming in with their rent cards fully paid up and then they realised actually that there were some people who were just pocketing the rent, and there were some staff who were out selling keys when they decided, actually, no, we need to rescind this policy on squatting. Um, So they served lots of notices to quit, and then people were coming in with rent cards that had been issued by members of staff. So there there were some very strange things happening sometimes with with policy. This was in the early 80s, and this was a response to Thatcherism, and it was an attempt, I think, by uh, Labour councils at the time some labour councils to show solidarity with the working class uh while while we were under attack from thatcher at the same time as as workers you know we could either support those positions but staff were actually concerned about it particularly those staff who would be responsible for uh collecting the rents at some point or man you know recovering the 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 properties that had been squatted. And in my case, working, um, doing homelessness and dealing with people who were homeless, not actually being able to allocate them properties that were empty where keys had been handed in. But as soon as the people were going up to see them, they'd already been squatted uh, because it was that organised. So... uh, I think the union itself actually was raising concerns about the impact on the the ability of people to do their jobs and also concerns that when it was eventually going to be rescinded that um, this would massively increase people's workloads trying to deal with the fallout of some pretty stupid political decisions. But principally our ability to um, participate in campaigning and yeah. we do it now. You know, Unison does it now. Unite do it. They will support community campaigning groups um, as trade unions and as workers involved. Um, you can also, um, I mean, if you identify, you know, if you're a worker and you identify tenants who might be uh, able to make a contribution, is actually directing them towards a tenants' association or encouraging them to get involved in, um, you know, residents. Uh, uh, forums meetings and so on and you know the tenants movement has been largely um clientized really it, you know it's been it, it's been th- th- acquired by landlords and it's largely controlled by landlords but there is a move i think and in fact the government i don't think they even realize it in their latest uh uh housing bill are proposing um an obligation around consultation with tenants and residents that implies the re-establishment of tenant and residents associations, and I don't actually think the government quite realises potentially what that will mean. Because the Tory government, because it's a Tory West government, um, local authorities hopefully will welcome it. Housing associations, who of course are now a larger sector than than councils. Um, won't welcome it at all because they really don't like having active tenants movements. But in terms of getting involved uh, and raising the issues and doing policy development and, and all of that sort of work, the way to do that is through your union. Now, I don't know which union organises um, architects these days. It used to be MSF, I think, um, which I think now uh, is it within Unite, uh, Unite the Union, so... I would say to every architect, join Unite and, um, you know, get involved and get active. That's where the majority of construction workers are now. Um, uh, involved, and it makes perfect sense to actually start doing that. The other thing, of course, is as professionals, you can either join the Communist Party or you can join the Labour Party. You can, if you're not employed by a local authority, then you can stand for the council. You can become elected as a councillor and you can hope to influence uh, policies within local authorities around this. And, you know, one of the big issues at the moment is the fire sale of public land. You know, if, if as an architect, if you're sitting there as an architect, as a professional, and you get yourself on the planning committee, you're in a position. If you get yourself to be the chair of the planning committee, you're in a position to make a huge difference, potentially, to the decisions that are being taken uh, and, work. you know, working with officers. Planning officers will make recommendations based upon the law and based upon the council's policy and based upon what the local plan is. As architects also within the community, you can get involved in local authorities with the development of local plans. Uh, You know, they are required to to consult uh, with their communities on these issues and the local plans are supposed to be refreshed every X number of years. I don't know what the current rate is, but as an activist within the community and as somebody who is in the know you're actually in a position to be able to make informed comments and to get involved in lobbying uh, and doing that. As housing workers, uh, we would do that as well. And we would generally do that if we are employed. We would generally do that through our trade union. So as to, because that provides us with the the necessary protection if we're, you know, potentially crossing professional boundaries and actually moving into uh, political positions. And to me that, you know, is what we've always done and it's the way to do it.
1: Uh, and it's something that is entirely separate from the act like the the notion of being an architect and doing
2: architecture it's it's political militancy as such yeah exactly and what it does is it brings your skills your knowledge your background and understanding to that struggle yeah and you know and we need it we need it all you know everybody needs it there needs to be some discussion about what is happening particularly with housing at the moment uh, and housing development you know, what I see going up around me in London, as far as I'm concerned, is no progress. You know, we've seen some massive um, estates, brutalist estates with thousands of properties on them being raised to the ground and being replaced with nondescript tower blocks that as far as I can see actually have no obvious identity and they're all being marketed as luxury apartments uh, primarily for sale where they have affordable units they're generally shared ownership which is the biggest rip-off uh, as far as housing goes that I can think because as well as your mortgage you're also paying your service charge and you're paying rent on top of that completely unaffordable I mean it's just ridiculous it's ludicrous to get a foot on the housing ladder you know, and, and now, of course, most of them trapped because they've all got lethal cladding on the outside and they can't sell them and uh, and they're stuck there, you know. I mean, there's the, there's the biggest irony of all, oh, if you're in a council flat, you can't move. Well, if you're now a leaseholder in, in a block that's been built after 1990, forget it, you're stuck and you're going to be stuck there um, probably indefinitely because you'll never get a mortgage because the co- cost of removing the cladding is going to be more than the flat is actually worth. So,
0: because all those fire protections and and legislation were 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 ripped out of there by Thatcher, basically.
2: No, they were ripped out by Cameron. Primarily, it was it okay. was Cameron. I mean, the 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 bonfire of building regulations occurred under Cameron. He he actually mm. went from 300 pages of building regs to about 30, right? As right, I right, understand right. it, and that that was their specific. So I mean, it is that new.
1: So much more freedom for architects
2: to design the way they want. But you know, but but before <laughs> ten that, times, ten times more freedom. But before that, you know, I mean, you've had, I mean, we've had the explosion of of high rise accommodation um, really since the nineties. Uh, that's you know that's been taking off, uh, and it really has taken off in the last twenty years uh, in in ways that um, I never never thought I'd see. You know, you're, you're knocking well, down tower blocks and yeah, you're yeah. replacing them with tower blocks. Why? Why? Yeah,
0: it's so ironic that the the whole narrative against council housing, in like the as it started in like the late '60s into the '70s, was against tower blocks, especially I guess the system built tower blocks, which did yep. sometimes have problems, but then the private sector just went back to the same same yep. technical solution eventually, right?
2: Yeah, same materials, same building um, uh, practices, and indeed actually less safe materials. As we saw with, with Grenfell, and we, you know, where they retrofitting and and putting cladding on now, or were, were putting cladding on. Um, again, who who won? Qui bono? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Qui bono from this stuff? Because it ain't us. It ain't the residents. It isn't the tenants. It certainly isn't the working class. And it's not even the architects. I mean, it's no. it's like the five
1: percent of the architectural profession, probably. Maybe uh, in the at the peak of the uh, neoliberal boom, maybe the top twenty percent of the architectural profession was gaining from this. But like, it's not even the, what you might what you would consider kind of labor aristocracy in the terms of like well-paid professionals. Mm. The, the, the material conditions of the of the majority of professionals have been declining.
2: Yeah, no, no I think that's absolutely right.
0: All right, so that's going to be the end of part one uh tune in next week we're going to launch part 2 um we're going to continue this discussion with Lorraine uh and then we're going to go on to some uh some 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 examples of contemporary architecture discourse right we it's like uh, we're going we're to have
1: these all been a very serious conversation and it's going to continue <laughs> next week and then we're going to show Lorraine examples of contemporary mainstream left engaged architecture.
0: Yeah. Some, some favorites from, uh, from last month might show up here again. Uh, we, we were thinking Uh, of this as kind of like a, like a react segment,
1: veteran activists, (laughs) militants react to architectural bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you next uh, week. Yep. Uh, don't forget
0: www.patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod Indeed. Help us become professional grifters Start today. Okay. See you next week. Yeah. See you next week.